9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined by our friends, our Monday friends in California. We have from the American Enterprise <laughs> Institute, Corey Shockey, the owner of that famous chuckle. Hi there, Corey. How are you? Hello, David. I'm exceedingly well, thank you. Excellent. And in Alexandria, Virginia, we have the inimitable Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you, Rosa? Hi, David. I'm well. Well, and in the District of Columbia, we have, from the Financial Times, Edward G. Luce. How are you, Ed? I couldn't be better. Thank you for asking. See how everything is better all of a sudden? What could it have been? <laughs> what mystery? What, what strange thing? Could it have been, you know? But, you know, in Washington, there is this kind of predisposition. First of all, after four years of drama, they want to maintain the drama. And secondly, to make kind of crazy predictions. And I thought we might provide an antidote to that by sort of looking ahead, but not in a crazy way. And the thing that inspired this, by the way, for me was I was looking at um, Politico's playbook yesterday, which was Sunday. And the headline in Politico's playbook yesterday was, um, uh, the, about the coming backlash to Bidenism. And I was like, what the fuck? It's the fifth day. I mean, yeah. it, it, <laughs> you know? usually it takes at least seven days before you get a backlash. Yeah, you have to have an ism before you have a backlash to the ism. You know, I mean, what is Bidenism for God's sakes? But I mean, you know, it's like they're so desperate to create some kind of you know, the narrative that they're used to with Trump, that they're trying to, you know, impose it on this perfectly normal administration, you know, as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, anyway, there, you know, there are things out there that begin to give us a sense of how the world is going to go and how it's going to be a little bit um, different. And I just thought, you know, let's let's read the tea leaves. Let's read the tea leaves at home. Let's read the tea leaves overseas and see what a sensible person might deduce from all of this. Corey, you've had five days of the Biden administrations. I've been like 20 <laughs> executive orders. Um, 30 but, executive orders already. Oh, we're, yeah, we're at 30 executive orders. Well, see, that's mm. the thing. There are a lot of executive orders. Um, what, 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 is, what does all that tell you? What is, the, what is this kind of wave of White House productivity suggest to you? Uh, well, first, it suggests to me a welcome return to policymaking by the White House. Uh, and, <clears throat> excuse me, I am myself so happy to have the return to boring normality in White House press conferences with do-goody Jen Psaki uh, asking people to email her questions and some of the questions are like, what kind of ice cream does the president eat? That is 
somewhere a child sent a question to the White House press spokesman um, and the answer wasn't incendiary, um, right? Like the safety of that exchange feels really nice. Corey, Substance- Corey I find chocolate chip to be a pretty incendiary answer. But I mean, it's just a matter of opinion. <laughs> exactly the point. I think, you know, such that's a relief to return to. So my possibly my favorite Onion article of all time was in mid-September of 2001. And please forgive me the cursing uh, as I tell you what the title of it was which is Americans yearn to return to pointless bullshit. (laughs) And I'm feeling that yearning. It's great to think that, you know, somebody cares what kind of ice cream the president uh, prefers instead of, oh my God, are the democracy guardrails holding in our country? Substantively though, let me say a couple of things. (laughs) I do... I think um, the Biden administration is very shrewdly making a distinction between easy, low-hanging fruit that they can overturn by executive order to get credit for not being the Trump administration and being activist. So the transgender ban on military service, the Muslim ban on travel, Uh, And that may be what's provoking Politico and others to say there's going to be a backlash because they are actually signaling those issues. But what I think is more interesting is they've clearly made pretty ruthless prioritization between the performative stuff and what they are going to expend genuine effort to get by legislation like immigration reform. And I think that's a really smart set of judgments about governance right now, because it is going to be hard to get things through Congress and uh, figuring out which are the things we don't want to leave vulnerable to a future reversal by by executive order. And what uh, and also we need to calm allies that there's not going to be a constant seesawing of American policies depending on the presidency, but that there's some continuity in American policy. And the only way you get that is legislatively. Um, well, uh, I, you know, I, I take all that. I frankly find the ice cream thing to be fairly uh, bland, as you say, unless he had made the choice for mint chocolate chip. I don't believe mint and chocolate belong together. (laughs) This is the culture war I have been missing, right? Like I want an argument about what is the statute of limitation on Bernie in the chair with mittens memes. I don't. That's so wonderfully quotidian. (laughs) Yeah, I think we're going to have that with us forever. That's probably the best creative explosion in recent American history. and someday there will be a whole museum on the mall. It is. I hope uh, the, that museum will have the will also have the other great meme of our age, which was on the anniversary of Ayatollah Khomeini's return to Iran. Um, Iranian bloggers, uh, social media netizens start 
started posting cardboard cutouts of Ayatollah Khomeini on the moon landing and other ridiculousness, which brings his terror down to size. The Museum of Memes. That's, you know, it's not, it's not bad, but it would probably have to be virtual. Anyway, um, Rosa Corey makes a point um, about, you know, the focus on policy, the focus on normalcy. But as we're reading tea leaves here, I think one of the tea leaves that we can read from this focus on executive orders um, and from the comments of the Republican Party in the course of the one week or so since the inauguration is that there is not going to be any honeymoon, that they didn't learn anything on January 6th, that there are going to be no consequences if they can help it for the people who did that stuff on January 6th. And they're going to be obstructionist on everything. Am I overstating this? Unfortunately, probably not. I I think that um, you know anybody who thought that Mitch McConnell turned over a new leaf a new leaf um, was mistaken <laughs> when he you know said yeah sorry that was a Freudian slip <laughs> I wish he had a new leash um, um, was mistaken. I mean. It, we, we're in this sort of paradoxical situation. We're still the demo, the sort of structural democratic crisis that brought us Donald Trump is not gone, despite Biden getting into the Oval Office and despite the Democrats nominally controlling the Senate. You know that that on the one hand, um, you know Biden is not a crazy radical, right? Um, many Americans may wish he was. Many Americans may fear he is. He's not. He's 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 a centrist Democrat. He's basically going to do fairly centrist things um, for better or for worse. Uh, and, and those are fairly centrist things that are supported by a large majority of the American people. But because of the way so many electoral congressional districts in this, con- in this country have been gerrymandered, because in effect, we have the equivalent of, of the British safe seats and rotten boroughs at this point. Um, you know, the, 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 the constituents the Republicans have, uh, you know, they're not in districts by and large where they have to please a cross-section of the American population. They're in districts where they have a, a, a constituent base that is really extremist and that follows Trump. And so rather than acting in the interest of the country or in the interest of the majority of the country or even in the interest of the majority of the people in their states, they're essentially playing to their base, which is still Donald Trump's base at the moment. And so, you know, the fa- it, it, it's it's crazy, but this is what we're kind of, we're, we're stuck with this system for the moment uh, where essentially a, a minority of the American people are overrepresented, particularly in the Senate, uh, and therefore have the power to either block or certainly dilute or slow down legislation that is supported even by large majorities across the country. And I think we're going to, we're going to see, we're going to see that we're not going to see, we're not going to see an atmosphere of Mitch McConnell saying, we're so sorry, we brought you Donald Trump. We're so sorry, we brought you extremism. We were so wrong. We're now going to try to do what we think is best for the large majority of the country and is supported by the large majority of the country. We're instead, they're going to continue to play to that. uh, Unfortunately, that Trumpist base. Yeah. The Republic 50 Republicans in the Senate, represent 41 million people fewer than the 50 Democrats in the Senate. Um, And, you know, Republican, uh, you know, 
folks on on Twitter are, are always quick to say, well, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Actually, we're also a democracy. And that kind of gross misrepresentation was never anticipated. And the clearest way to understand that is to recognize that it was about 1875 when the U.S. passed 41 million in pop, total population. In other words, it was 100 years after the first 100 years of the country, there weren't even 41 million people here. So to, to imagine that they sort of envisioned this is, 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 is kind of foolish. Well, and um, I, would, I would just add one thing to that and, and go a little bit beyond what you said, David. I'm not actually that interested in what the framers would have wanted. You know, um, I think that they were smart people. Um, I think they did a good job in 1789, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't, you, you know, right now we live in a world in which arguably there is an internationally recognized human right to democratic governance, right? In which we do believe at, in the principles of self-determination, in which we do believe that a minority should not control a, a majority against their wishes politically. Um, and kind of, it, it's a little bit irrelevant to me, even if the framers would, you know, maybe James Madison, if he woke up today would say, hey, I think this is pretty cool. You know, white guys in particular have kind of an outsized say in things and rural farmers have an outsized say in things. Maybe he would have said, that's fine. That that works for me as a white guy, as a, as a uh, you know, I mean, you know, as a white supremacist uh, farmer, I was, I would totally be cool with this. I don't think so, actually. I think James Madison was a much more decent human being who, had he grown up in our time, would have had a very different perspective. But but I, I do think we, I mean, this is a point that I've returned to at various points. I don't think the issue is whether we're having a constitutional crisis. I think the issue is whether our constitution in some ways creates a crisis by having an increasingly anachronistic framework that is not well suited for either the size and scale of the United States or for modern democratic norms. I agree. By the way, if, if Madison were alive today, he would probably spend all day long going, oh, my God, there's a machine that shows an old man in mittens. And he would, he would be looking at all this. <laughs> as he, he saying, should. As he should. I spent part of my weekend with, with an app called Face Cover, which enables you to swap other people's faces for Bernie's face in the now iconic picture of Bernie in the mitten. So I bet Madison would be busily putting, you know, Thomas Jefferson's face on Bernie. <laughs> no, he'd be putting John Alexander Adam. Hamilton's Alex face on the rump of cattle. <laughs> right, oh, wow. that too. Wow. Um, this has degenerated quickly. Let's elevate things by turning to Ed. Um, Ed, you know, one of the things that one would hope in this kind of circumstance is either A, the, the, you know, there would somebody would heed the president's call for unity and take it seriously, as opposed to cynically using it as a, as a, as a political um, cudgel, as the Republican uh, leadership has, or that the Democratic Party would sort of get their act together and say, well, if they're not going to go along with us, we'll figure out how to sort of get our ducks in a row and do the reforms needed in order to get something done. One area that this has come up is, is filibuster. Um, we've talked about this uh, in the past. And uh, by the way, I would tell everybody over the weekend, Norm Ornstein had a great piece in the New York Daily News describing just what kind of reforms would be in order. Um, 
But Ed, you know, in the in, in instead of that, we have two Democratic senators, uh, Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, both saying that they're not going to go along with the filibuster reform publicly, as opposed to doing it privately and you know within the caucus, uh, and and essentially undermining the entire party um, in order to preserve their sort of political capital back home. And it just you know, if you're reading tea leaves. It's got to be a little concerning that the party, even even as the White House seems to be pretty disciplined in producing its executive orders, the legislative side of the party seems not to be gaining much traction. What do you think? I think that's right. I mean, the, the difference is between today, what Biden faces with Congress and what Obama faced. Um, uh not apparent in terms of the stance of Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party in general. It's going to be obstructionist. I think by now that's been made pretty clear. Um, you know, not just over the Senate trial of um, former President Trump, but but also with the 1.9 billion pandemic relief bill and the immigration bill, obviously. Um, so that's that's nothing new. We've seen this movie countless times. We know that the Democrats lose. The party in the White House gets blamed for grid gridlock. Mitch McConnell knows this, and he wants to run that again. And there's no reason to believe that he wouldn't succeed again in the 2022 elections and possibly with the presidential uh, election in 2024. Um, we've also seen people like Joe Manchin um, play this role of... Um, a sort of mystical upholder of bipartisan norms, um, the most important of which is um, the filibuster and presenting it, I think misrepresenting it as something that is as steeped in, in American tradition as the constitution itself. And as Norm wrote, and as Rosa can say, you can say we can all agree, the filibuster was principally a tool of Southern slave state senators, John Calhoun being the sort of most expert exponent of the minority blocking the will of the majority. It then got used to sustain Jim Crow, to prevent civil rights reform and so on. This is a tool of white minority supremacist minority, if you, um, I don't think it's too hyperbolic a description um, and is not present in any other uh, entrenched democracy. You don't have- including, uh, Including, by the way, the House of Representatives including the House of Representatives. Um, so I think we're going to get uh, into the situation where Biden pretty quickly catches up with where Obama is now. Obama said, look, it's time to get rid of the filibuster. And I think he's absolutely right. And therefore, the game won't be, you know, well, how can we placate the Republicans? Because whatever you do, the Republicans will present it um, as, you know, a socialist attack on, on American values. Um, you know, whether you abolish the filibuster or leave it well alone you're gonna get the same critique from Republicans. Um, so it is gonna boil down to these um, centrist Dems, a small handful of them led by Joe Manchin. Um, and I think the pressure is going to have to be acute um, because the one way the Democrats are assured to lose in 2022 and 2024 is if they get nothing done and you can't do most things by executive action. As, as Corey mentioned, you need legislation. You need to push through legislation. And I should add, I think, you know, given the great focus Biden has made on racial equity, 
um, that one of the most important things he could do if he succeeded and Chuck Schumer succeeded in abolishing the filibuster is statehood for the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Um, Puerto Rico, overwhelmingly minority um, um, place and the District of Columbia um, still largely minority. Um, you can bet your bottom dollar that if this was white majority district and that was a white majority island, they would have achieved statehood decades ago. And it would be irreversible. And maybe that maybe Republicans would then, you know, force South Dakota and North Dakota to create middle Dakota in retaliation the next time they had the Senate. But these kinds of steps, I think, have now become um, irrefutably just and necessary. And I think it's only a matter of time, probably very short period of time before Biden, as I say, catches up with Obama on the need to, to have simple majority rules in the Senate. I hope that's true. By the way, um, Ezra Klein had a really good piece in the New York Times over the weekend on precisely this issue of president being uh, facing the midterm elections. And if he hasn't gotten anything done, what that is likely to mean in terms of the opposition party doing what they usually do in midterms, and that is gaining seats. Uh, I also wrote a piece on this, which was online on USA Today yesterday and tomorrow, which is Tuesday, we're recording this on Monday, um, will be in the paper version of USA Today. And, you know, it makes the point that the filibuster started in the middle of the 19th century, was rarely used. It's, as recently as the 50s, it was used once a year, perhaps. Uh, it only started to be used more regularly in the 90s and the 2000s, and then not as a tool to promote cooperation, as people refer to it, but more as an obstructionist tool. But let's shift, Corey, let's shift outside the United States, because we're reading some other tea leaves. By far the biggest um, political story in the world over the course of the past four or five days, I think, has been the wave of demonstrations in Russia. Um, uh, triggered by the arrest of Navalny uh, and subsequently the arrest of his wife. Um, and this caused as, as big a, a sort of popular outpouring um, of opposition to the Russian government, uh, as we've seen in a long, long time, um, including some remarkable video of crowds of demonstrators in Irkutsk, where it was 50 degrees below zero, uh, and other crowds of, of demonstrators, you know, hurling snowballs at the police without any sort of sense of fear. Um, another element of this story, though, Corey, is that um, instantaneously the White House sided with the protesters, condemned the Russian government, uh, urged them to use restraint, spoke words promoting democracy. Um, you know, in in a, in a fashion that is a real turnabout from the way the pre prior administration dealt with Russia. What can we learn about the future of, you know, the issues that the Biden administration is likely to deal with and how they're likely to deal with it from this little vignette we've just seen? Uh, it's a great question, David. And I agree with you that it's wonderful to have this volte face where the White House actually takes positions um, uh, acknowledging and supporting the universality of human dignity and human rights, and that governments are most stable and most legitimate 
when they respect the will of their own publics. So that's wonderful. I did notice that there were only, I think, four issues on which Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, made public statements between the time of his appointment and when the administration took office. And they were all on democracy, promotion, or human rights. Hong Kong, Saudi Arabia, uh, two others. So I think that bodes really well for the return of democracy promotion and respect for human rights as a signature part of American foreign policy that is a virtue in and of itself, but that also, as I think the administration uh, has publicly acknowledged, is hugely important if you think you're going to align countries to help manage a a rising predatory China. Uh, you know, Xi Jinping is out making statements about how it's time to end the sanctioning of countries and that all systems are equally legitimate. And as Americans, we fundamentally reject that, right? It's, there are truths we hold to be self-evident. What I would love to see out of the Biden administration though, is more than just a public statement on Twitter or any place else, but genuine, um, uh, a genuine willingness to compromise other things we want in order to advance democracy promotion and human rights. They haven't yet actually had to make any trade-offs um, and we ought to have active policy initiatives right? Why aren't we publicly supporting Alexei Navalny as the next Nobel Peace Prize? Um, what are we doing to embolden Russian NGOs to have access to him in prison to make sure he's not being slowly suffocated or starved to death? Uh, how can we showcase the strength of his family and make sure that they are not being preyed upon by Russian secret services. It, all those kind of small ball creative things that put policy in place uh, matter also. And so I hope they will go beyond statements of, of support and do also additional constructive things to protect Navalny, to give a platform for the concerns uh, for the video that he created, which was an incredibly smart way to uh, maximize the likelihood of him surviving his incarceration. So, you know, we, we've seen some ch changes. We've seen people being appointed to this administration while Corey was talking, Rose, I thought, um, one of the last times that I recall this being debated during the Obama administration uh, with regard to Ukraine, you know, there were people who were like, let's go easy on the Russians. We don't need to inflame them right now. And there were some people who were uh, calling for much stronger action. One of the people who was calling for stronger action was Toria Newland, who at the time was uh, an assistant secretary, now is the undersecretary, the third ranking person in the State Department. Um, and, and you know, kind of one of the things we're watching for, I think, is how is this, you know, Obama administration 2.0 going to be different from the Obama administration 1.0? Uh, 
Uh, Obama is very cautious. Biden, although opposed certain kinds of actions, is not the same. Some of the people are different. We have, uh, you know, Russia hands prominent in it. Bill Burns, for example, at CIA. How, how do you think this administration, do you think that it will be more aggressive and following through on the kind of things that Corey is talking about and really making um, Russia feel a little pain? I do, David. That, that being said, I think that the Biden administration hopes like hell that they aren't forced into some kind of big confrontation, you know, in the next week, right? Because obviously a lot of uh, new officials have not even been confirmed at the senior level. Um, they're just getting started. They're playing catch up because as we know, the, the outgoing Trump administration did not cooperate entirely with the transition. And so I think that, you know, one of the reasons that that was so terrible for the Trump administration to to withhold full cooperation is precisely it risks putting the brand new administration into a position where where foreign adversaries decide to, you know, get up to whatever mischief they can or or create tests at a moment the new administration is not quite ready you know, doesn't have all their people in place, doesn't have doesn't have all their ducks in a row. And and I think that that's a very real fear that I have. And I'm sure that everyone in the Biden administration has, too, at the moment is is, you know, this is not this is not a moment where anybody in the Biden administration is going to be looking for some kind of major standoff or major, you know, test of strength or test of resolve. Um, you know, they're going to hope that there is a way to kind of get things back on an even keel. That that being said, I think that Biden himself has made it very, very clear that he, unlike Trump, I mean, well, you know, obviously, needless to say that the threshold on Russia policy has now been set a very low bar for doing better than Donald Trump. Um, but I think he's made it pretty clear that his intention is to be a lot more tough with Russia, uh, as well as with other autocrats around the globe. Um, as issues arise and, and obviously everything has been moving very quickly in Russia right now. Um, you know, it's, I, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know what the right response is at this moment, other than the things that Corey said, um, in terms of immediate reaction. Um, but I, I do think that even though the Biden administration, I'm sure does not want to be put on the spot and forced into a sort of high stakes confrontation, that if that is the way it plays out. I think that we will see much more toughness from the Biden administration than we saw, uh, not only from Trump, but probably also from Obama. You know, Ed, we've seen um, Corey's statement about Jake's early comments on, on democracy, notwithstanding, in the past three or four or five days, some really strong signals of, of reversal, um, uh, the stop construction of the border wall. They've appointed a senior official in the NSC to deal with border issues in a new way. Roberta Jacobson, really super talented former assistant secretary for the hemisphere. Um, they're back in with two feet at the Paris Accords. They're back in with two feet at the World Health Organization. And Dr. Fauci and, and I, I think Vice President Harris both addressed them. Um, they've also been sending somewhat different messages in the Middle East. Uh, uh, Jake made a comment about uh, saying that we would look at whether the Taliban was adhering to their promises uh, to to 
produce change as we evaluated our position regarding Afghanistan, uh, which sort of slows the those the uh, the 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 push to do sort of any deal we could with the Taliban that we saw from uh, from uh, Trump. Uh, we also have uh, he made made a statement about Yemen, um, and uh, you know it's a very strong statement that suggests that the tacit support uh, for uh, the 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 war there is not going to continue, and that the United States is going to be very sensitive to human rights issues there. Uh, and 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 we've also seen other governments sort of anticipate this. I, I think some of the most ham-fisted example, or one of the most ham-fisted examples of this, is the Israelis who are sending an emissary over to tell the Biden administration what kind of changes on the Iran deal, uh, uh, as as <laughs> has referred to it, the Jikpoa, um, uh, will 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 be acceptable. You know, like that. Well, thank you very much, Israel, for telling us what is going to be acceptable in our policy. Um, but it seems to me that that, that these are pretty wholesale um, changes. That this is kind of a big deal, and and who he's choosing to speak to first is kind of a big deal. Um, you think that's the message the world is getting? Yeah, I think the world is still a little bit hesitant, um, and and is going to await more. Um, a little bit more evidence and a little bit more time to see how the Biden administration unfolds in practice. I mean, the, the you know the order of calls that that um, President Biden took was was ultra traditional. It was um, it was Trudeau in Canada, then Obrador in Mexico, and then Boris Johnson in London. That's like sort of boilerplate what administrations do. Um, and I think that the world has heard that Biden wants to return to a more normal, more predictable um, American administration. Um, but they know that in reality, it's a different time. Um, and that what's happened in the last four years, cumulatively over many more, but particularly in the last four years, changes the conditions in which a more normal administration operates. Um, and that there are there are things that an American president has to do with Europe that involve a little bit more exertion and a little bit less taken for granted um, than um, an American president might have had to do a few years ago. Um, you know, Germany is clearly, somewhat surprisingly, um, quite skeptical of having, let, of having a common stand on China, partly because it sells so many Volkswagens to China, you know, that it's got, um, that it's got sort of split priorities there. And the same applies to Russia. Even, even with the Navalny situation, Germany is now accelerating the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, and so it's got sort of split conflicts of interests there uh, um, as well. Uh, I think 10, 20 years ago, there would have been no question that an American president seeking to forge unity on China would have pretty much got it from, 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 from Europe. Um, today, it's quite different. Um, so on the Middle East thing, you know, America has understandably, because of recent wars of choice, wanted to disengage from the Middle East. And that's where public opinion is in this country. And it's utterly understandable. Um, uh, and public opinion also wants to confront China, at least have a sort of coherent, robust 
um, China policy. Again, very, very natural that that's where public opinion has shifted. In reality, of course, the great game with China takes place in zones like the Middle East. Um, and so you can't disengage from the Middle East because China is really engaging with the Middle East. Um, so, you know, how the Biden administration sort of works through this uh, and how it deals with um, the super important issue of getting vaccines to the developing world to prevent the, 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 the emergence of new mutations that you know, can defeat the vaccines that we, we will have received by then. How it deals with that is I think, um, it's a different kind of challenge than, 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 than the American president a few years ago would have faced. Um, all right, we only have about five minutes. And so I'd like to go fairly quickly to each of you and, and I'll throw out a name and you tell me what the, the the tea leaves tell you so far about um, how that person is likely to perform in their uh, role. Uh, Corey, uh, what about Secretary of Defense Austin? Uh, I think Secretary of Defense Austin is going to be doggedly loyal to the agenda the White House wants for the Department of Defense. His two first public actions uh, were uh, drawing much more institutional responsibility towards rooting out sexual harassment and sexual assault, and second, uh, praising the overturning of the transgender ban. Uh, and those send cultural signals uh, that, that the sociology of the military really matters to the administration. And I think that's a place where if I were advising Secretary Austin, I would advise him to make his next couple about uh, war fighting issues <laughs> so that it doesn't look like the only things the administration cares about are these issues, which while important are not the only important things, nor are they the reason we actually have a military. Uh, so I, I think uh, he is going to try and not make news, try and not have uh, the military a major voice in the Biden administration. I think that's exactly what the Biden administration wants. Uh, Rosa, what about a case that I find kind of curious so far, and that is Vice President Harris? I see her going to a lot of meetings with the president. I don't see her leading anything on her own. Well, actually, can I first add a comment to Corey's on on uh, Secretary of Defense Austin? Um, I, I I think that it is fair to say that there's some feeling that the Biden administration would like the Defense Department to actually neither be seen nor heard very much. Um, and and up to a point, I think I think that's a it's a it's a good recalibration to say that we want the the we want the the most obvious voices and faces on U.S. foreign policy to be diplomats, uh, not to be people who are associated with the military. Um, that said, I, I do think that Corey is absolutely right. There are some sort of urgent and pressing defense policy issues that have to get resolved. That I'm not. It's not clear to me yet how much the sort of core players within the Biden administration are focusing on this. I mean, in particular really need to recalibrate defense investment and the degree to which we're still invested in 
you know, land forces, in Middle East orientation, in a set of technological capabilities that are not what we need if we're ever if we're ever going to finish that supposed pivot to the Pacific. Um, it will be very interesting to see to what extent Austin decides that that is a priority for him to champion those those shifts in focus and investment to what extent he has the enthusiastic backing of others in the administration on that versus to what extent uh, neither he nor others will see that as a priority. I certainly know that there are other people within the Pentagon who see that as a priority, but I think that's a big unknown still about Austin. In terms of Harris, I, I it's a great question. I don't know the answer. I, I, you know, I think that many of us would really like to see her emerge as a, as a powerful, voice within the administration on not only foreign policy issues, but a wide range of domestic policy issues. And it's not clear that she has yet. Uh, she's been very quiet. She's been, you know, she's been being a dutiful, uh, she's been being a dutiful vice president. And she she is also being seen, but not heard at the moment. And, you know, she's she's relatively new to DC and to national politics. And it's a little too soon to say, I think, whether she is simply saying very, very smartly, you know, I'm going to put my head down, listen and learn, uh, and I'm going to then choose my issues carefully, um, but that we will see her emerge as a very powerful voice, I hope so, uh, versus whether she is sort of being marginalized uh, or doesn't have, you know, isn't the right person to play a strong role. I think it is probably the former, not the latter. I hope it is the former, and I think it is probably the former. So I am I'm optimistically expecting that, you know, she's once she feels a little bit more like she's got her footing, uh, we're going to see her stepping out a lot more. So the, the, the person I'd like you to give a comment on, and I'm going to put some, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to give you my perspective, um, is the, I think the person who has been the star of the Biden team for several months now, um, and that's White House Chief of Staff um, Ron Klain. And and the reason I say that is it was a very difficult transition under very difficult circumstances that went remarkably smoothly. They got as many people and appointments at least made as they possibly could. Uh, and then, you know, as we began, there were 30 executive orders five days into this administration, all of which had to be thought out, drafted, run by general counsel. You know, all, all these things have got to be produced. Um and when you think about it, hitting the ground running, being able to deal with COVID, being able to deal with these executive orders, being able to deal with the administration, I think it's been a, a kind of a tour de force. Um, but I'm wondering what your take is on his performance so far. That's a very, very good name to discuss. I mean, if you think back to first term um, chiefs of staff for almost all of the presidents that we can think of as far back as the eye can see, um, they've been fuck-ups. Um, that's then through, through no fault of their own in some cases. Um, um, but in other cases, because they didn't, didn't have experience or they weren't, they didn't actually know the president they were working for well enough, um, or they did, but they didn't know Washington. Um, in Ron Klain's case and Joe Biden's case, we have the most experienced president uh, in modern history, with the arguable exception of George Bush Sr. Um, and we have the most experienced incoming chief of staff. Um, 
who's also extremely close, like hand in glove with that president, which is an essential requirement for a chief of staff. Um, I think there is the added sort of um, benefit here of Ron Klain's epidemiological sort of experience running the response to Ebola in the Obama administration and setting up that unit that Trump then abolished in the National Security Council that is now being reestablished. Um, that's a hugely sort of important factor given that the pandemic is the number one priority. But if you look at um, what our expectations were for candidate Biden, but then sort of uh, transition president-elect Biden, um, and still perhaps now as President Biden, they were that he would just wander all over the shop, talk too much, trip up over himself, fall victim to logoria, um, and, you know, create difficulties that were none exist. He, he has been an absolute model of parsimony. He's said what needs to be said um, and nothing more. Um, he's not overexposed himself and I think is not going to overexpose himself in terms of appearing on, um, you know, um, social media, for example. That, that we can forget. The occasional sort of... Um, um, the occasional tweet saying that his favorite ice cream is is um, chocolate chip, um, maybe. But Ron Klain, I think, is managing this show, and and they have shown every lesson, uh, every sign of having digested <clears throat> the lessons um, uh, of the campaign, but also of the Trump administration. So I thought you were actually going to ask me about um, Janet Yellen, um, you know, about whom I also have good things to say. Um, I'm glad you're not asking me about people of whom I've got maybe slightly more critical things to say. Oh, now, come on. You're going to tease us with that at the end? Yeah, there's no way he should get away with that, David. <clears throat> yeah, go on. Let, you know, let, you know. Well, it's not necessarily the individual's appointments that, I, you know, I, I question. I mean, I think Marcia Fudge went to the wrong department. She should be USDA. I don't think Tom Vilsack should be in charge of, of ag. Um, I don't think Fudge should have been sent to um, HUD, which I think is a, a racially stereotyped role. I think we've discussed this once before. On, but these are sort of second order critiques. I mean, I'd have I have to say Lloyd Austin. I don't think is the ideal person to be Pentagon chief, but he's good enough. All right. Well, we'll come back and we'll visit those again. Um, as as we said at the beginning, this is just reading tea leaves. We're very early in this, um, but I have to say. Even early in it, it feels better than things used to feel. Uh, and there is some, there is so much better, so much better. You know, I gotta say, you know, just getting Trump off Twitter <laughs> was such like a burden, was relieved, you know, off of everybody's life. You know, you weren't going to constantly be disrupted by this. Um, but you know, a weekend so far, so good. Uh, and at this point, that's uh, that's that's plenty. Uh, so thank you very much, Corey. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you very much, Rosa. For those of you who are interested in the discussion that we were having about the Senate and Senate discipline, uh, we have former aide to Senator Harry Reid, Adam Gentleson, who's written a new book about the Senate coming. And we're going to do one of those book conversations that we sometimes do on Wednesday. Don't miss that. And then uh, we'll return on uh, Thursday and uh, have one of our discussions uh, looking at a number of the legal issues that are associated with um, the, uh, the impeachment, the Justice Department prosecutions of 
the Capitol Hill insurrectionists and others with, of course, Ryan Goodman and Kavita Patel, who will also, of course, provide an update on where we are on COVID. So that's it for the week. For more on that, go to the DSRnetwork.com. And if you got the chance, hit membership and sign up, be a member, support what we're doing here. There's a lot of work to be done. Thank you very, very much and uh, stay healthy, everybody.